notice the little checklist, to-do list there on your screen. Interesting enough, I've got some information here before me about a little incident that occurred in the Pentagon. This comes from John Tierney and Roy F. Baumeister's book, Willpower Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength, and it's quoted in a blog post. And the lady who uh, did that post is Maria Popova. But anyway, uh, it seems that in this book, these two authors uh, tell us about something that happened again at the Pentagon. They evidently invited this psychologist to come and give a talk to those there working in the Pentagon. And the topic was about managing time and resources. Well, as he began, he did this. He asked each of those in attendance to write out a summary of their strategic approach to managing time and resources and to do it in 25 words. Now, of all the generals gathered there, all the distinguished men in uniform, they couldn't do it. They couldn't seem to fit their strategic approach to managing time and resources into 25 words. But there was one lady in attendance. She actually, of general's rank herself, a veteran of the Iraq, Iraq War. She's not named. I don't know who that might be. But as the story goes, she completed her summary of how she tried to manage time and resources in 25 words. This is what she wrote. She said, first, I make a list of priorities. One, two, three, and so on. Then I cross everything out from three down. That was her answer. A pretty good answer, really. That would keep you focused. But as good an answer as that was, it's pretty general. No specifics about the priorities. What were they? Now, if she'd have tried to fill that in, I'm sure she would have exceeded 25 words. So she didn't say anything except give a general description. And as wise as it was, it doesn't even compare to what Paul did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. What did Paul do here? Well, he gives us a to-do list for believers. Seriously, he doesn't say it that way. It's not mapped out that way in your scriptures. But he says over and over again, in general terms, exactly what you and I should be focusing on in our everyday life as far as managing our time and our resources. 
Everything he says here, all the main verbs here are present tense in the Greek and they are all in the imperative mode, meaning they're all commands. And so managing our time and resources as believers for the glory of God, for our own sanctification as well, all boils down to one word, obedience. Obedience. Obedience is the key then, not only to our sanctification, but really, really, Paul has addressed this matter of sanctification, practical holiness, Christian living, over and over in this epistle. And he's coming back to it now as he summarizes at the end of his letter. But our standing before God practically, not, not our positional holiness, we're all positionally holy because of our faith in Christ. We're saved and we're sanctified and, and we're secure. But practically our holiness is all about our day-to-day relationship with God. We can't just live any old way, do whatever we want, violate God's word, disobey, disobey God, and have a functional relationship with Him. And so, obedience in relationship to God, and that then forms the, the boundaries of our relationship with Him. Obedience being the key. Now, Paul here in these verses gives a general summary, much like the lady general did. However, he does not leave out the details. He's he's summarizing what our relationship to God should be and how we should use our time and resources. And he covers the whole, if you will, of our Christian obligation. And he does so, get this, he does so in exactly 25 words. 25 Greek words. There'll be more than that in English. And you have to rule out the one time he digressed in verse 18 when he said, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's an explanation. Leave that explanation out and you have got exactly 25 words summarizing the whole of our Christian obligations before God and comprising our relationship to God. And get this, he covers the broadest possible time frame and and the, the broadest possible scope of our responsibilities. And he goes into great depth and detail, if you understand the words, and he puts it all into the deepest possible meaning. Time frame, scope. Depth of meaning, it's amazing. When understood, it's full of significant details. You know, the Bible's a big book. Have you noticed that? That's, that's a big book. Most of us, we kind of, from time to time, I think, look at all that God has said to us and we think, boy, I, there's just so much here. How can I possibly you know, get it all right. Well, Paul here is just wrapping it all up into a to-do list by giving us all these commands here at the end of First Thessalonians. He's doing this for the Thessalonian church. 
He's discipling those people, but he's also, through God's written, inspired world, word down to this very day, discipling us. And helping us figure out where to focus our time and our energy in terms of the use of our time and our resources. So, the structure, the content, the meaning, it's marvelous. It's deep. Well, isn't that what we would expect from God's inspired word? And at the same time, it is simple. It's understandable. And it's applicable. So let's take a look at it. These words, think of them as a to-do list for us, God's children. Now, a truly functional relationship with God is going to be reflected in three traits that are going to show up in your life if someone looks at you. And the first thing they're going to notice, if that is the case in your life, is that you're going to have an optimistic approach to life. An optimistic approach to life. And so he begins this way. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. He is talking here about our attitude toward life in general as God's child. Our attitude toward the world, our attitude toward our circumstances. And he says, first of all, be joyful. He says, rejoice always. Now, these three imperatives here in verses 16 to 18, this triplet of commands that he gives us are very specific and deep in their meaning. Now, here's one reason why. Ah, it doesn't show up good on the screen, but you see the underlined words? The underlined words are what we call emphatic in the original language. That means they are emphasized. Now, this is done in the Greek language by uh, where they appear in the sentence, before or after the verb, and so on. Needless to say, in each of these statements here, there is an emphasis put on the adverb that modifies the verb. So, he's not just saying to us, rejoice. He's not just saying to us, pray. He's not simply saying to us, be thankful. But he is very specifically pointing out that we need to rejoice all the time. That we need to pray continually. And that we need to give thanks in everything. There's the emphasis. And that's what makes this unique. That's what makes this powerful. And it's what makes it, yeah, difficult too for us. Because that's not the way we think. We, we think in terms of being joyful, for example, if everything's going well. And we don't think in terms of being joyful if things are not going well. Howard Hendricks, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, we used to tell about saying hello to people, the church, and, and he, he said, you know, I'd say hello to so-and-so, and, and I'd say, how are you doing? And they would say, 
Well, Brother Howard, I'm doing all right under the circumstances. And his response to them was always classic Howard Hendricks. Well, what are you doing down there under the circumstances for? Well, that's truly the question, see. That's what God is saying. He's not saying rejoice when you feel like it. He's not saying rejoice when everything's going well. Rejoice when you're happy. No, he's saying rejoice all the time. It's a command. It's not a choice. It's not something that just happens. It's not based on emotions. It's based on choice. Obedience. Now there's an old saying that goes something like this. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You ever heard that one? Yeah, that's an old southern expression. I'm not so sure it's really quite to the point so much as if we turned it around, though. If dad isn't happy, nobody's happy. Uh, That is more where life really revolves in the home. I know, because I'm a dad granddad and the truth of the matter is us men we can come home from our job or whatever we're dealing with our responsibilities and we can be irritable and demanding and uh, you know you know you put that you put that smile on when you're on the job you know you'll be you, you, you put on a good front but when you get home you're just your old sinful self And when dad isn't happy, nobody's happy in the house and everybody's walking on eggshells. So I'm sorry, men, but I, uh, you understand, I put myself in the same category, okay? It's pathetic. It's bad enough that we are not joyful in and of ourselves because we should be, we ought to be, and we're told to be, and we have reason to be. It's pathetic that we not only can't be joyful ourselves, but then to rob everybody else in the household of their joy, if we can. That's shameful. Shameful. Listen, we've got a lot of things we can complain about. I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of going through the uh, <clears throat> the drive through lines. I mean, I have problems normally hearing people, especially on those speakers. I mean, but now they all wear masks, you know. I, mean, I drive up to a drive through and they start talking to me. It always sounds like uh, Charlie Brown on the cartoon, you know. <laughs> That's all I hear. They never get my order right, you know. Well, it comes to the church, you know. We can't have a choir. We can't sit too close together, and we got to spread out. And we we have reason uh, for these things, but it's a problem. We've got uh, a whole other segment of our congregation is worshiping with us remotely. By the way, uh, we'll say hello to Grace and Deal and uh, pray for him as he's recovering from his surgery uh, at home. And, and uh, he needs our prayers, and uh, I trust the Lord's going to bless him today, and he's right there in, in front of the, the live stream this morning with his family. But uh, every, everything is just out of whack. We can't take our kids to camp this year. That just doesn't seem, ah, it doesn't seem right, you know? Everything is out of kilter. Every, everybody has a reason to be discouraged. You know what? But what, what are we doing down there under the circumstances? That's the question. This is our time to be different from the world. This is our opportunity to stand out without, you know, you know, you go out there and say, 
Praise God, y'all need to get saved. You know, you're going to offend somebody. But put a smile on your face and whistle a little bit and sing a little song and they're going to say, what is up with you? Then you're going to say, well, maybe you need to know Jesus. You know, then that's a whole different story because they ask. This is our time. This is our opportunity. Rejoice all the time. There are no excuses. Listen, I guarantee you, you tell me how bad you've got, I guarantee you there's somebody you know that's got it a whole lot worse than you do. If you can't look at it any other way, look at it that way. Rejoice in the Lord always, said Paul. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always and again, he says, I say, rejoice. And he says it again here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. The word for prayer here is a, just means any kind of prayers. It's a general word for prayer. And he says, pray without ceasing. Now that doesn't mean that we are to never, for a moment, a moment of quietness or a time for conversation with anybody else, we're just praying constantly. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about never giving up on prayer. We pray intermittently. And then that's one use of the Greek present tense. It doesn't mean constant, but continual in the sense that it's a habit of life. The prayer should be a habit of life that we should not ever forsake. And my friends, you say, well, we're, you know, I don't know about you. We got a lot of things to worry about. We got a lot of things that are, that are stressful right now. Families are stressed. Kids are home from school and probably will be more so this year. Uh, churches we can't, can't operate. Sunday school classes, you know, can't operate as we wish. We got all these problems. You, you can't find what you want at the store. You can't go and eat out at your favorite restaurant necessarily. It's just the whole life. Maybe you have to work from home on top of everything else and your whole life is just plain stress. Well, that's why you need to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That's one we probably ought to turn to quickly here. Uh, goodness, I don't know if I can mark it. Here we go. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. That means don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? And the peace of God, verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's stress relief. That's stress therapy. Right there. You don't need to go to the doctor. You don't need any medication. You just need to learn to pray. I know, we all pray. We need to, we need to learn to pray more often and more specifically and perhaps. Then he says, <clears throat> we're to be thankful. Be thankful in everything. In everything, give thanks. Now, obviously, when we thank, uh, we're thankful, we give thanks to God. And again, the emphatic part, in everything, be thankful. Wow. Go over to James chapter 1, verses 2, 1, 2, 3, 4. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into manifold trials. 
He didn't say now when the problems come, you're going to be joyful automatically. No, he said count it joy, consider it joy, make a, make a decided approach to your attitude. Keep your attitude focused on joy and realize that in spite of all these problems you have, count those problems, count those problems joy. Now that's, that's going even further. It's not only just being joyful when you have problems, but being joyful about your problems. How do you do that? Well, he goes on to explain it there in the first chapter of James. He says, you know, it's, the, it's your trials, it's your problems that produce maturity. So God's using that in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. Is that not something to be joyful about? should be. And that's always going on when we have a problem. Now, Here's where he adds that little explanation that I said, if you rule this out, it comes down to exactly 25 Greek words. And everything, he says, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, don't be confused. There's no article before the word will. It doesn't, in the Greek, it says, for this is will of God. God in Christ. It doesn't have a the. It doesn't sound right in English to leave the the out. In the English, but in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily have to have the, the the or the the there. And when it doesn't, which is the case here, it means this is just one aspect of the will of God. It's not all, it's not saying be thankful and that's the only thing God's will is all about. No, it's just like this is just one aspect of the will of God. But God does want us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything to give thanks. So that's the optimism we should have toward our life in general and everything that's going on in our life. It's, it's, you call it, you can call it faith. You can call it trust. You can call it hope. It's all wrapped up in this. We should have an optimistic approach to life. Then number two, we need a submissive attitude toward God. A submissive attitude toward God. Now he switches from the three positive commands that he gave us in verses uh, 16, 17, and 18. And now he moves on to two negative commands. Two things we should not do, he does not want us to do. And... By not doing these things, we are really being submissive to him because he's saying, don't do it. And for other reasons, I've chosen this word submissive. So let's get into it here. Uh, the next thing he says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. And then he goes on and says, do not despise prophecies or prophesying. So, what are we to make of this? Well, first of all, the word quench, uh, we understand that. It's pretty cut and dried. You quench a fire when you pour a bucket of water on it. So you put the fire out by adding something that cannot be consumed. And the fire is quenched. Well, how do we quench the Holy Spirit? Now, the Holy Spirit lives within us. He has sealed us. He has... Uh, made us a new creation. The Bible says in Romans 8, 9, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ has the Spirit of God within their heart and soul. 
We're indwelled. We have been baptized by the Spirit, which means we've been placed into the body of Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are operating in tandem with the will of God uh, expressed to us through that indwelling Spirit. The second or the third person of the Godhead there. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, you should write this down. Go back and read it again later. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. In other words, the law doesn't produce these things. Only the Spirit produces these things. You want to know if you are in a right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, just go to Galatians 5.22. There it is. By the way, thanksgiving, uh, joy, peace, all these things. That's really what he's summarizing here. So, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And note there it says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, or the Spirit's going to produce it. But how are we to be filled with the Spirit? Uh, The word in the Greek went back to the days of the sailing ship when the wind filled the sails to propel the ship. So we're not going to be propelled along in our journey to please God, to glorify God, and to be like Christ unless the Spirit is able to do that work in us. You say, well, how? It's a command here. Be filled. Be filled. Present tense. Imperative. Just like you find in 1 Thessalonians 5 here in our to-do list. But what's the key? The key is submission, and we find that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians 3, 16. Here we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It's okay, that's, that's totally different. No, it's not. Because if you go back to Ephesians 5, 18... And you read what it says there. It says in verse 18, um, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But then it gives us the the results of being Spirit-filled, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God to Father. Now go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And look at the results. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Wow, it's the same results. So if you are filled with the Spirit, it's the same as if you are allowing the word of God to control your life. You're being obedient to the word. The Spirit wrote the word. The Spirit inspired the Word. It gives us our inerrant Word of God. To be filled with the Spirit, obviously to be filled with the Word, to be be, uh, grounded in the Word and to be guided by the Word. It's kind of like for you younger folks, you turn on your computer 
and the windows come up and you go to your browser and you're on the internet and then you say, oh, I got to go do something else and you minimize the browser and you go and open up another program and you're sitting there maybe typing on your word processor, but you're still connected to the internet. You just don't see it on screen. You're not focused on it. You're not thinking about it. You may forget you're even connected to it anymore. See, we're always connected <coughs> to the Holy Spirit. He is always present in our heart and soul. He is always trying to move us into that conjunction with what the Word of God teaches, to keep us on the right path, and lead us to do what God wants us to do. But sometimes we just keep Him pushed into the background. We've got Him minimized in the browser of our soul because we're focused on these practical things up here we're doing. And we just got to bring him forward or at least up to where, you know, we're constantly thinking in terms of what does God want? How can I glorify God? What's my obligation here? But we just tend to minimize him and forget about him. Now, for those of you that there may be a few here that would more identify, at least maybe some at least on the live stream would identify with this. Uh, you know, a lot of times elderly folks are at home all day, retired and maybe confined, and they're by themselves. They're not uh, not in a rest home or anything like that. They're just home and they're by themselves. And a lot of times you go to visit them, you never notice what's happening. they got the TV on. They're not paying any attention to it. You go in and try to visit with them. I've done this hundreds of times. I go into someone's, they don't even, they're not even cognizant the TV's running. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to, I, I don't know. I got a one track mind. I tell my wife, I never learned to multitask. It's either watch the TV or hold a conversation. I can't do both. You know, it's just, just the way I am. Maybe some of you are in that same category, but they don't know. They just oblivious to it because it, in their mind, it's just minimized. It's just, it's just, they're ignoring it, but it's just the sound that makes them feel comfortable. Not alone. We don't want the Holy Spirit to be that kind of thing in our life. He needs to be front and center. He needs to be guiding us, directing us in everything that we do. We do not want to quench the Spirit. Now, here's something else I want to throw at you. You know, you got to be careful that you don't quench the Spirit in somebody else's life too. Hey, we don't think about that too often, do we? Somebody else says, I think God would have me do this, or God's leading me to do that, or I think we should do that. You say, oh, no, you don't, you don't want to do that. You know, you, you, you're not able to do that. You, you don't have the ability to do that. Somebody else could do better. Listen, don't quench the spirit. God always chooses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. I never, if there's any way possible, I never tell anybody who comes to me and says, Pastor, I want to, I think we should do this ministry. I think I'd like to do it. I never say, no, no, no. I always say, go, go, go. If the Spirit's moving you, don't, don't expect me to stop you. I got to be for you. Now, over the years, I've run on to other people that think that me or the deacons or somebody ought to, you know, approve everything. We've got to approve it. Listen, we don't approve what the Holy Spirit's doing. We get behind it. 
You say, well, maybe they're not the best person for the job. Maybe they'll fail. That's okay. Maybe God wants them to fail. Maybe that's how they're going to learn. Maybe that's how they're going to get better. Who's to say what failure is anyway, and who might they help along the way? Get out of the way and let the Spirit of God be the Spirit of God in the church. If God puts it on your heart to do something, doggone it, go do it. And I would love to hear about it so I can pray for you as you're going to do it. I will not throw cold water on it. I guarantee you that. Because believe me, I had enough people throw cold water on me when I was a, a young man trying to get into the work of the Lord and being a pastor. And I had people tell me I couldn't do it. I would fail at it. Listen, don't listen to those kind of things. And please, please don't ever quench the spirit in somebody else's life. And then he says, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Now, they did not have the completed word of God in those days. Otherwise, I'm quite sure Paul would have said, don't despise the word of God. Now, they had the Old Testament. They may even had portions of the new, but it wasn't complete. So God, in those early days of transition, gave them temporary spiritual gifts, including prophecies in which God could direct them as what to do and what was right and wrong and so forth within their churches. Now, in Corinth, Paul had people that thought too much of those temporary spiritual gifts and they had all sorts of problems and and you can read about, about that in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 and chapter 14 in particular. They had the opposite problem in Thessalonica. Evidently there had been some excesses, some things that weren't very scriptural, some things that were out of, you know, out of order, and they'd kind of gotten, uh, we don't want any of that stuff going on. Attitude. And Paul says, don't despise what the God is doing through those that have the gift of prophecy. Don't despise the Word of God. You say, well, I, 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 I love the Word of God. I've got, I've got three or four Bibles, and I read it. I've read through the Bible X amount of times. What do you mean despise the Word of God? Well, it doesn't, it's not a matter of how many times you read it. It's a matter of how much of it you incorporate in your life. There's a lot of people that know facts about the Word of God. They can give you all kinds of information, but they've never made it real as far as their obedience is concerned. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says, don't despise prophecies. You know, you've got to obey the word of God. You've got to obey the direction of God. It's the direction of God that comes through the word or through prophecy in those days in that situation, or what comes internally through the leading of the spirit. And his ability to help us understand the Word of God, which is operable right down to this very day. So any time we fail to apply the Word of God to our life, we are despising the Word of God. We're not seeing it as important. We're not giving it its proper place. Maybe you're allowing fear to stop you from being involved in this ministry or situation or circumstance, in essence, the end result is, in reality, you're despising the Word of God. 
You don't want to do that. Well, I had three points to this sermon. And all along I thought, I'm going to get wound up and I'm not going to get finished. So I already prepared to put, I've already prepared in my mind to put point three to next week and, uh, and add a little bit more to it, of course. So it won't be a one point sermon. So we're going to bring it to an end right here and come back to this next week. But listen, this, this is seriously a, masterfully constructed, very deep, practical, and broad summary of what it means to be a Christian on a day-to-day basis. So here's what we need to do with it. We need to memorize it. Now I can tell you, I, I, if someone tells me, memorize First Thessalonians 5, 16, 22, I'm not going to do it. Now, you know, if I, if I was in a class in seminary, they told me to memorize, you know, the whole chapter of Psalm 73. I would do it. But, you know, it's just, it's difficult to memorize. Okay. We, but we don't have to memorize because we got a Bible. Okay. You don't have to memorize it, but you do have to look at it. So here's what I would suggest. Note it. Put a little marker in 1 Thessalonians 5 in your Bible or a ribbon and, uh, you know, uh, take a little colored pencil or something, uh, a marker, and and highlight these verses and refer to it uh, once a week, better than that, once a day for a while at least, and maybe over the rest of your life, you know, every every so often, and it'll be memorized. It'll stick just by repetition. But it's that important of information. Note it and then live it. Be obedient. This is all about obedience. Every verb here is an imperative. It's not a choice. It's not a, I wish you'd do it. It's not, I exhort you to do it. God says, do it. So that's what we got to understand.